If anybody had anything you wanted to share, just a word of praise tonight before we look into the Word of God. I've been doing a series on the doctrine of God, theology proper, and uh, we have been considering um, what God is like, and we've been considering various aspects of who He is, and we have considered the fact that He is the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God. And he is unchanging in all that he is. And uh, we, we tonight want to consider um, God in three persons, as we've just sang about, the blessed Trinity. Um, and as believers, we recognize that we are not left to think about God, as we talked about this morning, as we would like to think of him. But we are dependent upon the revelation that he has given to us primarily through his word. Um, And so we are called to embrace the totality and also the mystery of God's self-revelation. God's revealed himself in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. But in special revelation, we have his word that gives to us, again, knowledge as to who he is. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons. So here is um, from God's word these things that we want to consider tonight concerning the triune nature of God. And we admit that this is a mystery. This is a great mystery. Hebrews eleven six says that without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of him that diligently seeks him. And so we are dependent upon God to reveal himself, and he has done that in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the main character of the Bible, of the revelation of God. And uh, it is here that we uh, see what is referred to as the triunity of God. It is a mystery to us um, as we think about it. and as I quoted some time ago, faith, someone said, faith swims where reason can only wade. Faith swims where reason can only wade. And as we think about the triune nature of God, we're in deep waters here. And uh, they are certainly beyond my comprehension, but there are things that God has revealed Psalm 145.3 says that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is inscrutable. It's unfathomable. There are things that we do know, but there is still mystery and things that are far and beyond us. And I would be the first to say that is true with this doctrine of the triunity of God. And so we want to begin just with a little bit of defining it um, and we, we begin knowing that we cannot unravel the mystery of God's tri, triunity, but there are things that we can embrace and we can know. And I like this uh, statement that is given by R.C. Sproul. He said, the doctrine of the Trinity does not fully explain the mysterious character of God. Rather, it sets boundaries outside of which we must not step. It defines the limits of our finite reflection. It demands that we be faithful to the biblical revelation 
that in one sense, God is one, and in, and in a different sense, God is three. So there are boundaries that God has given to us in his word that we must not go beyond because, again, there is mystery here. And yet there are things that God has revealed in his word that God is one and at the same time and in a different way he is, is three. So when we think about Trinity, we do not find that word in our Bibles in a concordance, but it is a word that means tri-unity or a plurality of oneness, a plurality of oneness. Wayne Grudem says that God, is e- God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each is fully God, and there is one God. So God exists in three persons. The Father is not the Son, and he's not the Holy Spirit, and, uh, but he is God. And the Son is not the Father, and he's not the Holy Spirit, but he is God. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and he's not the Son, but he is God. And so this is revelation that is given to us in the Word of God that we'll be looking at again here tonight. And so we need to be careful that we, we don't step out of those boundaries that have been placed there by God in his Word. There have been those in history that defined, uh, spoke, speak of God as modalism, that when it speaks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it denies that there are three persons, but there are three different modes in which God reveals himself. Sometimes he reveals himself as the Father, sometimes he reveals himself as the Son, sometimes he reveals himself as the Spirit, and that's referred to as modalism. Others have taught that uh, in the cults that uh, Jesus is not God, that he was a created being, um, that the spirit is kind of a power or a force. Um, But we find that as we think about the Godhead, that each of these members, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are equally God. They are fully God. They are co-eternal. They are co-equal in essence, and they are Uh, co-equal in glory and in power. And having said all that, we also say that there is is only one God. The book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaks clearly to that over and over again, speaking about the fact that God is one. There is no other. And I read this morning from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So one of the things that God was getting across in the Old Testament is what we would say is monotheism. Because Israel lived right in the midst of paganism, polytheism. It was everywhere. And God was ingraining in the thoughts and the minds of his people this idea of monotheism. And so here's this statement that the Lord God is one. But what's interesting about this word, this Hebrew word is a word, one Lord, that can have this idea of plurality. James Boyce, in his book on foundations of the Christian faith, said this. this in this very verse, the word for one is ekad, which means not one in isolation, but one in unity. 
In fact, the word is never used in the Hebrew Bible of a stark singular entity. It is the word used in speaking of one bunch of grapes. So there are many grapes, but there's one bunch. Or in saying that the people of Israel responded as one people. There were many people, but at the same time, they were one people. And uh, so here's this idea again that there is no other God. There is only one God. But the word that is used here can have this idea of a plurality um, within that oneness. And um, so there is a unity in plurality and a plurality in unity. Now, the other place where this word is used, anybody know where else this word is used to speak about a unity and a plurality? Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. The same word there. And in a different way, there's not a three here, but there is two, that, that in the design of God in marriage, there is this wonderful thing where two become as one, united, and they are as one. And uh, so it is, as we think about marriage, there is a plurality, but also at the same time, there is this unity. And I know that's not exactly the same, but there is a a likeness to that. As we think about this, um, this, I believe, is what the Bible presents to us. And as we think of the Bible, it is progressive in its revelation. God is revealing in time and in history more and more things And one of those things he reveals through his scripture that progressively we see more and more is this idea of the Trinity. And so in the New Testament, we will see it more fully disclosed. But in the Old Testament, we see it there inferred. And uh, there are various places that we see this. I love B.B. Warfield. He said this, the mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament But the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows follows it, but only perfected and extended and enlarged. And the illustration he uses is of a room that's full of lavish furnishings, but the light is very dim. And he said, you can see things that are there, but you don't see them so clearly. But the introduction of light into the room brings nothing to it which was not already there. It brings into clearer view what was already there, but only dimly seen or not seen at all. So in the Old Testament, we can go back and we can see hints and references to the triune nature of God, but it's as we come into the New Testament that a brighter light comes, if you will, and we see um, we see this uh, the the glory of, of the Trinity in the old in, in the New Testament. And so, as we think about that, um, Genesis one one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and we find this Spirit there hovering over this creation. So already indicated the God that God created, and there was also the spirit there. And then we also find in Genesis 1, 
when it gets to the creation of man and woman, there's this pause in this creation week, and a special attention is being given to the creation of man who's going to be made in the image and the likeness of God. And there's this pause, and what does it say? Let us, let us make man in our own image. There is this Trinitarian uh, conference, if you will. Let us make man in our own image. And indeed, God does. And then we also see this in chapter 11 of Genesis. At the Tower of Babel, it says, let us go down and there confuse their language. And then also in the Old Testament, we have prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, that he will be the son of Abraham, a son of David, of the house of Judah, but he's going to be more than just a man. Can you tell me some of the passages that foreshadow and foretell the coming of this one who is not just going to be a man, but he, in fact, is going to be divine? Very good. All right. All right. So he is he is divine. Another one. Where is he going to be born? Micah 5.2, Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And what does it say there at the end of that verse? His goings forth have been from everlasting, from everlasting. Any others? What about the kind of conception and birth? All right. Isaiah 7, 14, he's going to be called Emmanuel. A virgin's going to conceive and bear this child, and we see this carried out, and we're told that in, in Matthew's account. So this one that is coming, who is promised, is going to be, he's going to be a son of David, but much more than that, he will be divine as well. And then we find explicit text in the New Testament on the triunity of God. We see this fuller light that comes and reveals the fact that God is not a solitary being, but he is a, he is a plurality, a unity of plurality. Um, and it's interesting that in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is assumed As we open our Bibles in Matthew, what does it begin with? It begins with a genealogy. It begins with a genealogy concerning this one that has been promised, this one who is the son of David. It doesn't give us an explicit treatise on the triunity of God, but it begins with a genealogy and with his birth. This is the promised Messiah, and he is Emmanuel. Um, He is God with us. Um, So the triunity of persons in the Godhead is now once for all being revealed to men in the unfolding of the redemptive purpose of God. So the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity is based not so much 
on words, but in facts, in what is unfolding in redemptive history. So we have, first of all, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ. And then we have Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So herein we see the deity of Christ, we see the deity of the Holy Spirit, who is a further revelation and evidence of the doctrine of of the Trinity. So let me read, this is from Robert Redman, his book on systematic theology. He says, the incarnation and Pentecost precipitated and concretized, set it in concrete, if you will, concretized the uh, modification in the thinking of the first Christians about the one living and true God, because they were convinced that men had been confronted by nothing less than the unabridged glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit possessed a personal subsistence with the Father and with the Son. The first Christians were given the first impetus to formulate their understanding of God in Trinitarian terms. So with historic events that happen, with the incarnation, with the coming of the Spirit of God, we begin to see now the the early church formulating and speaking now more clearly about the Trinitarian nature of God, and it's seen um, in the scriptures. And this is not incongruous with the Old Testament and what the Old Testament had said, but here is this one God, but he exists in three persons. So this light from the New Testament gives us this understanding. So when we think about the deity of the Father, usually in the New Testament, when you just see the word God, it is in reference to uh, the Father, um, unless it's stated otherwise, but 2 Corinthians 1, here is Paul just giving his introductory comments to the church of Corinth. And in verse 2, it says there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God our Father. In Ephesians 1, 3, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So, very clearly, we have God the Father. And then as we think about Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's more than a man. And there are numerous passages, so I'm going to, again, put you on the spot here. Where in the New Testament do we find more references to Jesus, that he is not just a man, but he is the God-man, he is deity, and this is the way it was understood in the early church. So, some verses. John 10, yes. I and the Father are one. Do you know what the Jews did when he said that? Took up stones. They're going to kill him because he made himself to be equal with God. So they clearly understood what Jesus was saying there. He didn't retract that either. John 1-1. Or John 1, yeah, okay, <laughs> whole chapter, yeah. And the word, yes, very good. And where else? Yeah, Brian. 
is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Tanya. Yes, God with us, God in flesh with us. Any others? Colossians 2 has a lot to say, Colossians 1 and 2, about the deity of Christ, that in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So there was a controversy in the 4th century. It was called Arianism, the heresy of a man named Arius, He was a bishop in Alexandria, and he denied the deity of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and he would be condemned as a heretic at the Council of Nicaea in 325. But he said that Jesus was a created being. He was not God. He was not eternal, but he was in many ways similar to God. And this whole debate between a man named Athanasius and Arius came down to two different words. Um, the one was homoousius. And this Greek word, homo, is meaning the same. And the last part of the ver- word is the same nature. And this was what Athanasius said, that Jesus is of the same nature as God, as the Father but it was Arius, or yeah, Arius, who said he 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 added just one letter to that Greek word instead of the word homo, it was the word homoi, homoi usus, and it means similar in nature. So there's a big difference between that. He was of the same nature, but he uh, uh, Arius said that he is of a similar nature, similar. Wayne Grudem says, while the difference between the two words was only one letter, this difference was indeed profound, making the difference between biblical Christianity and heresy, between a true doctrine of the Trinity and a a heresy that did not accept the full deity of Christ and therefore was non-Trinitarian and ultimately destructive to the whole Christian faith. And he was condemned as a heretic. And of course, if you want to know, you know, if someone really understands and believes the true gospel, you want to know what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ. So we think of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 5. I think this is familiar to us, and here I believe is a clear affirmation that the Holy Spirit is indeed, is indeed, God. This is in the early church as people were selling what they had to help with the needs of others. And here is Ananias and Sapphira who have come and they've said they're contributing a piece of land that they had sold. They're giving all of the money, the proceeds to help needs, but they were lying. They kept back part of that. And we read in verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? 
Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So here he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and saying the same thing, you have lied to God. You didn't have to give this money. You could have given some of it. You didn't have to give all of it, but you lied. And you lied against to the Holy Spirit. And then he later says here that you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without without spot or with blemish unto God. So as we think of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is not just some force, as some people sometimes think. He is a personal being. He is a divine being. He is one that can be grieved and quenched. And so we need to um, understand that this applies to the Holy Spirit as well. Now, where are some of the ways in which the triunity of God was displayed as we look at into our New Testament? Well, I read this, 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 this evening from Matthew 3. And what do we find at the baptism? Here's Jesus being baptized by John in the river. And it says that here's Jesus. Here is the spirit like a dove coming down upon Jesus and lighting upon him. And then we have the words of the Father. This is my beloved Son. So we, th- we see all three there, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's even reflected in our baptism. When we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Name is singular, but it's representative of this triune God, a unity, a plurality, and a unity. And uh, so it's seen even in our baptism. We see it in a benediction. I used this one this morning. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, a reference to the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And in that benediction, we see there the triunity of God. And then we also see the three persons when we think about the fellowship that exists between the members of the Godhead. In John 1.18, it says that the Son is in the bosom of the Father, and he's the one who declares the Father to us. But there is, this, there is this relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. They are two distinct persons, but they are both divine, and it is Jesus who's revealed the Father to us. Um, and as, as uh, was said, Jesus said, I, I and the Father are one. Um, Jesus said, whoever hates me hates my father. So there is this union and communion that there is that exists between the members of the Godhead. And then when we think about the works of God, when we think about creation, when we think about salvation, they are a work of the triune Godhead. Our salvation is a work of the Father who has chosen us in Christ before the world began. It is Christ who has come to redeem us, to effect that, and to bring about our salvation. It is the Spirit who applies it to us by the new birth. And so we see in salvation that it is the work of the triune God. Um, 
So these things are a picture to us of the reality of this God who is triune. So as we think about this tonight, again, this is probably nothing, I'm sure, new to us. But this should evoke in us wonder and seeing the beauty of the triune Godhead, though there is much mystery. It should inform our worship, our adoration, and our praise. This God alone is worthy of our praise. And it is in him that we, um, we, we, we worship according to the scriptures. Is there worship that is appropriate for Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Yes, it is. Philippians 2 talks about that, that one day every knee is going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So worship is to be given to this triune God. And the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is essential just in knowing God. We've seen this in 1 John. It is Jesus Christ who has come into this world, who has given us an understanding, and we know the true God, and we are in him, and it is all through Jesus Christ. In other words, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, you don't know God. These are inseparable. So in knowing God, we must know the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it is the Father and through his spirit that enables us to know him. Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Our understanding of the Trinity hasn't come because we're so smart and we've figured it out. It comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when we think about the atonement, the doctrine of the Trinity is vitally important to that as well. If Jesus was merely a created being, he was not God with us, it's hard for us to conceive of how one man could atone for our sins. He couldn't. He was a man who was like us, and we're thankful we have one made like us. He partook of our humanity, but one that is greater than us, who can intercede for us, make atonement for us, and it's by the worth of who he is, the value of who he is as the Son of God. And maybe just in a practical way, When we think about the Trinity, it maybe ought to affect our thoughts about marriage. In God himself, there is this unity and yet diversity. And we should expect to see that in this relationship of marriage, that two are becoming one, and our marriage really ought to reflect the beauty of diversity and yet unity that two are becoming one, and in our marriages we are reflecting something of the triune nature of God, persons that remain distinct, individuals, but also they are yet one. And then also as we think about the church, God's unity and diversity is also to be seen in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 
that there are many different members and there are many different gifts that God has given. Many different members. He talks about some are like a hand or an eye or an ear or whatever. And yet what? They are they're one. They are one body. And we depend on one another. We help one another. So there is this diversity. But the church ought to be the place where we also manifest a unity that is like unto the Godhead. And uh, so may God give us grace that we would be such a people as that, that our marriages and our church would reflect that as well. And again, in closing, Wayne Grudem says, though we will never fully comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, we can worship God for who he is, both in our songs of praise and in our words and actions as they reflect something of his excellent character. God in three persons Blessed Trinity. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we bow humbly before you today. And we are thankful that through your Son we have been given an understanding that we may know the true and the living God. And we are in him who is true. And we thank you that you have shown this to us through your word, by your spirit. And we bless you tonight. Help us that we may honor you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go with us as we go and enter into this new week. May we seek to live for your glory, for your honor. We pray that today is a means of grace to help us on in following Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Lord bless you all. Have a good night. You are dismissed.